Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I am speaking with Ricardo Curry, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Radiology Associates of South Florida in Miami and the Chief Medical Officer of Mednax Radiology Solutions. After attaining his medical degree and completing a radiology residency in Sao Paulo, Brazil, he became a staff radiologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital and assistant professor of radiology at Harvard Medical School, where he served as director of clinical cardiac MRI for three years. He left Boston in 2008 to join the Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute, becoming the director of cardiac imaging for both the MCVI and for Baptist Hospital of Miami. In 2011, he became the Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Radiology Associates of South Florida, a private practice of 76 physicians performing over 1 million imaging studies annually through operations in nine hospitals and 23 diagnostic imaging centers in South Florida. Two years ago, the Radiology Associates of South Florida ceased to operate as a private practice after its acquisition by Mednax Incorporated a national provider of healthcare that comprises over 3,700 physicians serving 4,000 healthcare facilities across all 50 states. Recently, Dr. Curry was appointed to serve as the Chief Medical Officer of Mednax Radiology Solutions, which encompasses over 800 radiologists and includes the teleradiology company, VRAD. Before we dive into the podcast, I have a quick favor to ask you. After you've listened, please take a minute to subscribe to the series, share it with your colleagues, and rate the episode with five stars. It really makes a difference. Now let's get started. Ricardo, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here and uh, being the footsteps of several other great leaders in radiology with your ACR podcast. Well, we're privileged to have you. Perhaps we can start by talking a little bit about your family and your childhood. Can you tell us what life was like growing up in Sao Paulo? Sure. I grew up in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and uh, my parents are both doctors. My mother, a pathologist, and my father, a pediatrician. And actually, for a great part of uh, my father's career, he spent in healthcare administration. And as you can imagine, there was some influence in terms of what career path I would choose. But my childhood was actually was great. I was surrounded by family, really my parents, they nurture uh, education and really striving in education. It was just a great experience. Do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have two brothers, one older. He is also a doctor. He's a cardiologist. And I have a younger brother, uh, and he went into business. And are they in the U.S. now, or are they in Brazil? Actually, they are, they are both in Brazil. 
I see. So you're the uh, you're the vanguard who came to the U.S. And what was your first job when you were just a, a kid growing up? The first first activity where you got paid. My first work was being a tour guide, where I would bring kids and teenagers to to Orlando and Miami, and we would go to the parks. And it was about like fifty kids and teenagers. And there were two tour guides for a period of two weeks that we would need to take care of them. And that first job gave me a lot of insights that I had to plan ahead. I had to be responsible. It was a great responsibility of all these kids and teenagers and had also be responsible for their finances because they would bring their dollars to buy you know, electronics and, and presents and gifts to their parents and so forth. So they will have to be planned so that the money will last at least the entire duration of the trip. <laughs> that is a huge responsibility. How old were you when you were doing this? It was between 18 years old until I was 22. Wow. That's really, that's really something. That's quite a job. And, uh, a great training, I imagine, for leading groups, uh, not just of young students, but of radiologists and other physicians. That's marvelous. Yeah, no, it was, was a very interesting part that actually looking back, that there were a lot of learnings from that my first job. Yeah. Now, thinking back to your upbringing with both parents being physicians, and you mentioned your dad being heavily involved in administration. Are there any lessons that they imparted to you that you carry with you today? Yes, yes. No, very much so. Uh, I think particularly for like mentorship, I see my father and my mother, but particularly my father as a great mentor and the ability of and the privilege of having mentors throughout your career. I see my dad as uh, being a great mentor in several steps in my career that I believe is a very important component. Are there any particular vignettes that you might be able to share? As I mentioned, he was a pediatrician, and then he went in, into healthcare administration and hospital administration. And he helped organize like the top 20 hospitals in an association for like share governance and share expenses and best practices. And throughout, it has been always like a great person for me to bounce ideas and to have feedback and also like different bifurcation points that you might have in your career. So it's always good to have a very close mentor that can guide you and, and share experiences. Absolutely. And very special and nice that your dad can fulfill that role. Now, after living in the U.S. now for 16 years, thinking back, what is your perspective on education and particular medical education in the U.S. versus Brazil? You know, it's interesting. I would say I learned a lot mainly in the methodology in terms of like a medical student in the U.S. versus Brazil. 
I had the opportunity to spend my last year of medical school uh, doing rotations at University of Miami and uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, short duration at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, and just learning a more systematic approach in the U.S. medicine. And having said that, I think there are really pods and centers of excellence in Brazil that you can have a terrific uh, medical education and healthcare. There is like disparate healthcare assistance and hospitals, but you can definitely have a terrific medical education, but also like as a healthcare provider in, in a health system, you have access to some of like the latest technology and also specialists that, you know, they travel elsewhere and they bring those new procedures, those new technologies back to Brazil. Do you have any perspectives on how Brazilian culture influences the patients, both the range of diseases that they present with, but also just their general sensibilities and perspectives as a patient in Brazil versus the U.S.? It's a very good question. And I see that from just Brazilians living in the U.S. and experiencing the healthcare environment. But the physician-patient experience, I would say it's a lot closer in Brazil. And I see more nurture of that relationship between physicians and patients. And I think that's one thing that we are seeing as medicine evolves in the U.S. of having that high touch, that personalized experience being critically important for patient access, you can get into the healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting observation. Now, at what moment during your training did you decide that your next job would be in the U.S.? And what did you do to prepare for that transition? When I did the rotations, specifically at University of Miami during my last year of medical school, that was like the turning point. I saw already at that point, I had decided that I wanted to pursue radiology as a residency. Uh, and I saw the possibility of going back and having, you know, going through the, the different steps to validating the medical license and applying for a postgraduate medical education. And it was just a matter of planning, going through the different steps, and taking that path. Okay. Now, I'd like to turn to your time in the U.S. and beginning with your years at Massachusetts General Hospital. It seems that the typical pathway toward ABR certification amongst radiologists who have completed their training in another country is that they need to repeat four more years of training once in the U.S. How did that all work for you at MGH? Yeah, so I came to Mass General as a, a cardiovascular imaging fellow. And it's interesting, and I'm sure you know, uh, like back in the early 2000s, I applied to several programs, uh, including to your program when you were at Stanford. I remember. Yeah, so I was very pleased to be accepted at MGH. And the pathway was basically a combination of fellowship and faculty during the duration of four years. But during that time, I really had a unique 
experience of having a great mentor. And that mentor was Tom Brady, not the football player, but the Dr. Thomas Brady. He was the vice chair of research and the head of cardiovascular imaging. And it was such a unique time that there were uh, several really pioneers in cardiac imaging at that point in time that uh, I was very blessed to be at the right time, at the right place, surrounded by the right people during my years of both fellowship training and early faculty position at MGH. Yeah, that's great. Just for the record, we would have been delighted to have you at Stanford and were disappointed when you chose MGH, but no doubt it was an excellent decision. Immediately following completion of your cardiac CT and MRI fellowship at MGH, you were named Director of Clinical Cardiac MR. How did that jump from student to director come about? Yeah, it was really an opportunity, and I mentioned, but I think it's worth acknowledging. We had an early program and validation of cardiac CT. So cardiac CT was just starting at that time. It was back in 2003, and we were moving from 4-slice CT to 16-slice CT, and then just after to 64-slice CT. And I had the privilege of working with, you know, Stefan Achenbach and Udo Hoffman and Cohen Neiman, Sonny Abara, and, and many others. So we were really testing and validating and doing clinical research and early implementation in clinical practice. So that led first to have an opportunity as we are validating this and having this early clinical implementation, there were not many highly qualified doctors to carry the program in clinical practice. So that was an opportunity to transition to faculty. And then in cardiac MR, I had a very good background actually going back from Brazil during my residency training. And I had an opportunity to see like high volume places doing cardiac MR in the Heart Institute of University of Sao Paulo and at Medimaging. So that brought me a lot of knowledge and experience. And there was just an opportunity to how can we help the cardiac MRI program at MGH to succeed. And again, was being at the right time at the right place. Yeah, that's great. But even amongst all the people that you named who essentially are a veritable who's who in cardiac imaging, you were the one who was selected to take on that leadership role. Any insights as to you know, why it was that you were tapped or how it came about? Did you express specific interest? Did you take on specific tasks during your fellowship that made it obvious that you would then become the director? Yeah, I think throughout the fellowship, I think there was a lot of attention, like Cardiac CT was the new kids on the block at that time. And I always was like very intrigued and interested and and dedicated to CT, but also had the prior experience with MRI and was just passionate about the modality as well and doing some research uh, correlating cardiac CT and cardiac MR with, for example, nuclear stress perfusion imaging and and other modalities. 
that I think that helped be able to lead that section at that point in time. Okay. How did your time at MGH prepare you for leadership in private practice? You know, sometimes as you go, you don't realize, but when you look back, it was such an important period of my life and my career. I acquire a lot of skills, uh, for example, research skills and dealing with spreadsheets and carrying over like research. And I was very passionate to translational research in, in practice and how can we apply this clinically. In the end of the day, how can we help patients with that research? And it was really the beginning of a, an era of particularly in cardiac CT where we were, you know, not only doing the validation, comparing with invasive coronary angiography and comparing with other modalities, but later on, we were translating that into applications. So, for example, uh, using CTA to assess chest pain patients in the emergency department. And when I was at Mass General, we were doing research in that regard and conducting those uh, clinical trials. And then just fast forward, uh, when transitioning to Miami, that, that was, okay, now how can we really implement this in clinical practice? So there were a lot of skills in terms of analysis, planning, and translation in clinical practice. Now, you're focusing quite a bit on the cardiac imaging and cardiac CT, but Obviously, you know, you've taken on much larger leadership roles, and we're going to get into that in a moment. But I'm really interested in whether you believe that the three years that you spent on the faculty at MGH provided some distinct advantage to you in private practice relative to colleagues, you know, who joined uh, private practice directly out of fellowship, and particularly vis-a-vis taking on, you know, the top leadership positions in your practice. No, sure, sure. Yeah, I think I think in general there's no right or wrong, but that early experience as faculty uh, and being able to be highly specialized in one area definitely helped me basically transition to private practice, but uh, at the same time be able to lead one of the sections uh, that was in cardiac imaging here in Miami. So that already gave me a lot of exposure by, you know, leading a section and what can be done uh, in that section. Uh, so that was probably a stepstone. If I would be transitioning, looking back directly from fellowship, I wouldn't have that experience with early leadership uh, or that, that leading a section to begin with. Fair enough. Now, in moving from MGH to MCVI, uh, Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute, what surprised you the most about the transition? It's interesting. In one hand, I was very positive surprise that I had a lot of autonomy in building a program and a section and a lot of latitude. And, uh, you know, 
in academic places, sometimes you, as you know, you have uh, politics and it's not as easy as navigating the clinical education research component and the balance of that. But that was uh, a very good opportunity transitioning to Miami to be able to have the autonomy to lead a section and translate that into, you know, how, how can we build that in, in this new environment? And then the other part, which is in the beginning, we were just beginning with cardiac imaging, so I had to be uh, versatile, which I think is very important as a radiologist. Uh, and I see and, and we nurture that in the practice, very important to be highly specialized and have a niche that you can contribute and add significant value, but at the same time, uh, be versatile so that you are able to fulfill, you know, evening shifts and weekend shifts. Uh, so basically be able to be a good radiologist, a good body imager in reading CTs and plain films and ultrasound. So that was a transition. Uh, but that was a very important transition that it needs needs to take place. Yeah, terrific. Now, you, you mentioned about the latitude that you had and the freedom to build a new program. To what extent do you attribute that to the leadership of the practice at that time, to Barry Katzen and others, for establishing a culture that allowed you to operate fairly freely, or do you think it's just sort of the nature of private practice versus academics? I think a lot is due to the leadership here. So at that point, Jack Ziefer was the chairman of the practice. Barry Katzen was one of the leaders of the practice and obviously a leading authority in interventional radiology. And the previous chairman, Neil Messenger, who was a chair for 20 years, he always fostered subspecialty care that is going back to the 80s. But that was a lot due to the leadership in place at that point, that basically they were eager and very supportive for me to basically have that latitude and autonomy uh, to be able to build out. The, the cardiac imaging section. Yeah, terrific. Now, upon moving to Miami, your role was initially director of cardiac CT and MRI at the MCVI, but then two years later, that role expanded to director of cardiac imaging at Baptist Hospital as well as the MCVI. What additional responsibilities were associated with that expanded role? So, at that point in time, it was mainly overseeing the entire cardiac imaging spectrum of the institute, including nuclear medicine and, and also like just oversight of uh, echocardiography, mainly for the QA program. So it was a broader role involving the entire spectrum of non-invasive uh, cardiac imaging. So how did that transition actually come about? And in particular, as you took on this hospital-based role with what appears to be greater oversight over cardiology activities, did you alter your leadership approach as you were positioned to provide leadership for non-radiologists in any way? Yeah, that's a good question. So we always 
try to foster a very collaborative nature uh, between like radiology and cardiology. And that was mainly a supportive role. You know, sometimes it's just don't get in the way. So for that aspect was behind the scenes, supporting the, the QA program and continue to establish particularly multimodality pathways for patient assessment and clinical pathways for patient assessment. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point about supporting, not getting in the way of things that are going well, particularly as you seek to gain trust of another specialty. That's a terrific point. A year later, you became the chairman and CEO of Radiology Associates of South Florida. That seemed like a pretty big jump. What was involved in that transition, and why do you believe that you were seen as the obvious person for the job among partners who had been a part of the practice for a lot longer? It was a big jump at that point in time. And like the radiology group and RASF had always great leaders. And at that specific point, Jack Seifer, who was the the chairman of the practice, he stepped down and he had to take a new position with the healthcare system. So he was invited by the Baptist Healthcare System to be the, the lead for the Baptist Health Medical Group, so the lead physician for the medical group. So he stepped down and uh, basically the practice started looking for, for new leaders. And after, you know, a process and I think taking into account despite being young at the practice at that point in time, but the collaborative nature and what it has happened in the cardiac imaging section and some committees involvement with the practice, that was the choice. And that was a a lot of responsibility to carry over at that point. Yeah, no doubt. Now, taking on this major management position, what did you do to prepare? You know, in one part was learning on the job, which is not always good, but as the transition evolved, I was really eager to acquire knowledge. And I think this is important. And looking back, that that was a time that, you know, radiology reimbursement was getting crushed. We had a negative payments, uh, uh, almost every year from Medicare, and there were bundle of payments and uh, NPPR. So radiology was definitely at pressure regarding reimbursement. And I think the key was looking for knowledge. And the ACR does a phenomenal job with that. So I was very pleased to attend several sessions of the ACR RBMA, And then over time, the Radiology Leadership Institute that you are a great visionary and and many others of creating the RLY. So there are definitely a lot of resources to support physicians that are taking more an administrative role. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Looking back, what do you see as some of the most complex issues that you dealt with as a group president? Sure. I think I would probably break down in three main 
buckets, if you will. And if I would go back and what what are like the secret secrets for success? I think the the first bucket is strategy and culture. The second bucket is manpower and workflow optimization. And the third bucket is mainly the back end support, uh, particularly re- related to revenue cycle and uh, uh, negotiations with uh, managed care contracts and payers and hospital contracts. That evolved over time. Obviously, it didn't happen uh, like in, in the first year or so, but that was evolving over time. And if I, I will go back for the first bucket, the strategy and culture is critical. Having like dedicated strategic planning and having a clear vision on where we as a group should go and what are our priorities is key. And it's not only about this strategic planning, I think that the key is the execution. And we were laser focused in the execution of the strategic planning. We had yearly sessions and we still do, and we define our five top priority initiatives. And we go back every year and we review that. And we see which ones we accomplish, which ones we are making progress to the goal. And that creates a physician alignment. And that creates a good culture also in the practice on, you know, where are we heading? So the strategy and culture is very important for physician alignment and engagement. Uh, We started at that point with a committee. Uh, We created some new committees uh, and committee participation. So many of the physicians, they felt really involved. They were part of the finance committee and the operations committee uh, or the billing and quality committee. Uh, So they were really involved in the management of the practice. And part of the strategy and culture is, is also celebrating success. Uh, when we as a practice or a section or physicians, they had accomplishments, is really celebrating that success. So I think that was very important for the practice to evolve over time and continue to grow. Then the second bucket is mainly operational and it's, it's manpower and workflow optimization is how we can continue to provide a great service is the balance between service, quality, and efficiency. I always share that with our physicians. How can we continue to improve quality, improve service, uh, but in the end of the day, we need to be efficient in what we do uh, so that we can recruit and retain the best talent. And then we can continue to exceed expectations. And that was a time of growth uh, that the practice was supporting with Baptist Health, new hospitals and new outpatient centers, and how to do that in taking that into account. And the third component, which is 
it's critical is that back-end infrastructure and really optimizing the revenue cycle. So we had a, a lot of attention and focus to optimizing the revenue cycle. And also we had a strategies and a part of that strategy was creating an annual report that we were able to really highlight our quality metrics, highlight uh, specialized care, uh, highlight some specific services that we were providing, such as stroke care and highly specialized interventional radiology and advanced cardiac imaging and high-end sports medicine, among others, and high-end body imaging and pediatric radiology and, and uh, you know, ultrasound with uh, elastography and contrast-enhanced ultrasound and, and you name it. But that was a critical component of creating an annual report that we were able to go to payers and to go to the hospital and negotiate uh, favorable contracts for the practice and also align with the hospital with performance-based contracts uh, that would be at risk. And with that pathway, we were able not only to improve our quality metrics, so we had growth in terms of physicians. We went from 55 to now over 80 physicians. We improve all our quality metrics, and I can talk more about that. And we were able to increase both the top line uh, revenue, but also the bottom line, which is important to keep expanding the practice and attracting more physicians to the practice. Yeah, that's marvelous. What a great spectrum and scheme uh, as you look at uh, the scope of what you were managing as the president. As you think across these three buckets, the strategy and culture, the uh, workflow and manpower, and then as you described the back-end revenue cycle type of, of topics, what do you see as your biggest wins? What are you most proud of from those years? Sure. Well, I would start, I think, as physicians and medicine, we need to be taking great care of the patient. I think that's our number one priority. And as physician leaders and running physician practices, that's very important. So I'm very proud of the quality initiatives that we achieved over time. We were one of the first groups in the country that we provided 24-7 subspecialty expertise, having a dedicated body imager and a neuroradiologist available 24-7. And we had other specialties on call, such as MSK and pediatric radiology. We were able to improve, for example, we have a 95% of the ER cases are read under 30 minutes. And that was improved over time. So we were measuring that metric. Our average turnaround time for ER cases is 11 minutes. Also, when you measure and you track and you share those quality metrics, you have, you know, and, and you allocate the, the, the necessary manpower, you have alignment. 
we implemented like a call center for critical alerts so that we were able to reach out clinicians in a timely fashion and also lead to minimal disruption of the radiologist workflow. And our satisfaction scores, they also improved. So we have been for outpatient satisfaction for outpatient imaging. We have been above the 90 percentile over press gainy for multiple years. Uh, and also we have every year a press gainy physician satisfaction with the radiology department. And he has ranked at the 95 percentile. So I think that first is like clinical excellence. And we had a lot of quality wins to celebrate. I think the last one in the past two years the practice achieved like 100 out of 100 points in the MIPS macra that we have a phenomenal quality committee, very dedicated, Dr. Ludman and Dr. LaFosse and many others, and dedicated personnel supporting that quality. That is a major win. Having benchmarks and looking at those benchmarks, and it happens in short increments. It doesn't happen quickly, but over time, it's really great to say, you know, we are doing something special here. We are definitely doing some great patient care and we can measure and we can track and we can see improvement. Yeah, that's marvelous. It's a lot to be proud of, Ricardo. Congratulations to you and to the whole practice. So you guys were firing on all cylinders, really doing great, uh, innovative, focused on the best for the patients. What led to the decision to sell the practice to Mednax? Sure, sure. So it's interesting. Basically, and that was back going a few years back, is you always need to be looking at strategic initiatives and opportunities. And over that period of like six years, and that was culminating in 2017, Basically, we were maximizing the things that we could be adding value. So I mentioned like the, the culture and the strategy and then the manpower and workflow optimization, all the quality initiatives. And also in the back end, we had, you know, revenue increase like close to 50% over that period of time. And uh, the bottom line also increased over 100%. Because we had a lot of work done into the negotiation with payers and the hospital and having those service agreements. And it got to a point that if we continue in that path, there is not a lot more increments or wins to add. We will need to reinvent ourselves. And at that point, we looked and see, so what are the key components that we are lacking? And going back to the drawing board, it was mainly about technology and how we would expand. We had more and more pressure to expand subspecialty services. So how we would have technology to have not only home reading uh, workstations and fully connected and integrated to the hospital, 
but also a different model that you can have a true subspecialty service by having some backup team on the cloud to support you when you need for overflow, for subspecialty expertise. So technology, it was a big component. And we were 100% dependent on the technology from Baptist Health. And as you know, that is the case, like looking at many hostels in the country, the hostel IT in general, they are not focused in radiology and optimizing the radiology environment. Only if you have a dedicated IT team for radiology, which is not the case in many hospitals. And, and it was not the case here as well. So we had great systems and we have great systems, but they were not aligned to optimize the workflow from the radiologist. Uh, so that was also a, a very important component. And also like growth, we saw that we needed to grow and also to diversify in order to continue to be relevant. If you go to business school, you see every 10 years you need to reinvent yourself and you need to, you know, how can you disrupt the way that you are practicing? So all of those components led for us to, you know, let's explore, let's see what are the options and who will be the best partner. So it's a long answer, but I think it's very important because that is really the thought process uh, behind our decision to, to really partner and merge with Menex. Yeah. If I could maybe just distill down a little bit about what I heard you saying, there were really two key components. One was the availability of technology and uh, technology that was independent of the health system, which had challenging IT support and wasn't maybe fully aligned with where uh, the radiology practice needed to go. And then also uh, the availability of subspecialists and being able to expand the subspecialty care model. To my mind, the first part relates to capital investment and the developing capabilities investing in the technology. It sounded like the group was doing great with a 100% increase in the bottom line that probably there were reserves available for those kind of capital investments. And it also seems that from the standpoint of getting the kind of backup and subspecialty extension that one could have potentially reached out for some partnerships without actually selling the entire practice. So maybe help clarify just a little bit about why it was that with these needs, as you described them, the group went all in in selling itself. Great question. And actually, it was really the model that was created with Mannex and the way that it was structured. And basically, the model was a full alignment in that regard, uh, where like the revenue still would be split and the majority of, of the revenue would be within uh, like the physician practice uh, and also having the a dedicated governance that would continue to govern the practice in a very similar terms that it was from before. 
And regarding the comment regarding the technology and the investments, you know, it's always uh, challenging. You can, you know, buy just a product that is available. It's a significant undertaking. It's not that you can say, okay, we had a, you know, a couple of million dollars and now we'll go and, and we'll build that IT infrastructure that we need. So from what we saw from Menex and particularly the VRAD technology, it has been a homegrown technology led by radiologists for the past 15 years that has been improved over time that really optimize for teleradiology, but also really applicable for the work that we do at on the ground uh, practices. Okay. So uh, it wouldn't really be possible to replicate that environment of that technology and the IT backbone. And also, like for the physician coverage and capacity, you could partner and you could outsource but uh, it's different when you are fully aligned and you are part really of the same family and the same team that you can allocate specific resources with a specific subspecialty expertise in certain hours of the day or the night specifically and there is a lot more alignment and willingness to create those models okay Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. It makes sense. Thank you. A couple of questions about the process of merging um, with Mednex. What were some of your chief concerns entering into the negotiating process? You were representing a very large, well-established group with probably a lot of multiple assets, complex relationships. To the extent that you can kind of unpack that a little bit, what was foremost on your mind as you stepped forward to the negotiating table? Sure. I would see probably three main buckets as we would impact that. One bucket is the physicians in the practice. So that's obviously a big bucket that, you know, their expectations, they need to be aligned. The other bucket is Baptist Healthcare System, so your hospital partner. is not any partner that they would be willing and able to sign off uh, on that. Is what is the value that you are bringing to the table and what is your value that you are bringing to your radiology department? So that's a second bucket. And the third bucket is with your partner, in this case with Mennex, and how to structure your contract that you are going to still preserve uh, the core concepts that you had in the past and create alignment in the future. And it's a juggling act because those are the three main components and how you create a win-win-win for, for the doctors, for the hospital, and the uh, obviously, therefore, for the patients that we serve and uh, like the structure with Mennex. And I think we, we came a long way structuring a good alignment in the three buckets. 
That's great. Now, one of the common concerns expressed when discussing corporate buyouts is that junior partners whose equity in the practice has not fully vested might never realize the return that was promised when they joined the practice. Do you see this as a real concern? And if so, what did you do in the course of these negotiations to mitigate that concern? Sure, sure. Of course, you need to treat people well. And again, that goes back to the strategy and culture and, and, and vision. And the way that I see over time in radiology and medicine, there are many opportunities that come. And in the past, I think there were a lot of opportunities regarding ownership of outpatient centers or outside ventures for you know, private practice radiologists. Uh, and then there is, you know, different types of opportunities of having real estate and so forth. And that is, I think, one of those transactions, uh, th that's another, you know, change that you need to be looking to the future to add value. That it's also an opportunity, but what are you building that you are going to motivate, attract physicians in the future. And that's exactly what you were mentioning. And, and our vision is that by having a leading practice and leading practices across the country and having the right technology and having the ability not only to move images around and connect to different practices, but provide the subspecialty expertise and then the ability to be really early on into fostering machine learning AI. Uh, so for the new radiologists coming in, I think, and, and the ones going to, you know, pursuing a career in radiology, I believe machine learning AI is a major opportunity. You know, there are those generations. So part of that, we are fostering with our IT platform, with the Menex VRAD IT platform, an incubator that we have early access to models that we can use in practice. And as a matter of fact, we are utilizing some models now, today, uh, and there is a lot more to come. So going back to the physicians, is how can physicians fulfill and, and younger physicians and physicians that will be, you know, junior partners or uh, in residency or even before, how can they go to a practice that they will be able to practice in the top of their license, that they have the technology needed to support them so that they are not doing a lot of tasks that are not needed, that they are practicing this hybrid approach of subspecialty expertise, but also, you know, general radiology and having access to new tools in radiology with machine learning and AI. So that's how we see uh, that evolving. That's great. The vision for the future and the future opportunities are important in helping people to cross the bridge, if you will. Another concern often expressed is that 
with the market power associated with a very large group, such as the one that you were essentially joining with Mednax, associated with that comes a reduction in control. How did you and the group assess this concern heading into the acquisition? Basically, with our clinical governance model, that we have completely autonomy for the entire clinical component of the practice. In the back end, which is technology, revenue cycle, and adding in support, that's the part that we, we thought that we maximize our ability locally to have it. And that's where actually Menex is, is coming in and helping us managing that part. That's where they have the expert. They have the technology. They are adding a lot of value to us. But the autonomy, we have completely control of our recruitment, retention, clinical staffing model, schedule, you know, time off. So it's it's a hundred percent decision for the clinicians. So I think it's is mainly how the structure of you know the different players in the market and having that ability to be able to run your practice from a clinical standpoint the way that you did in the past. So that's a great articulation of the opportunity to maintain control. And it sounds like you guys did a great job through the negotiation being able to do that. How about as you look at the passage of time and consider the maintenance or strengthening of that control for self-determination and self-governance as opposed to the alternative that decisions could go the other way. What is your perspective on that? Again, great question, Jeff. And that is for the way, and now I had the opportunity, and maybe like just transitioning a bit, I had the opportunity of seeing how Menex works. It's a physician-led national practice. And it's about the strategy and the culture. And for any physician practice, large national practice, if you don't have physician alignment and engagement, will be a failure. And that is critical. And that's the second main point is if you are not like take great care of the patient. And if that is not your number one priority, it will also be a failure. And that was interesting because there was, there's always, you know, skepticism and fear. You know, what, what is in the other side? A lot of pressures in the other side, you know, like the, the investments and the marketplace. But those are fundamental principles that we had that alignment in culture with the Manmax culture. And if that goes away, that will be a complete uh, failure of any practice, small, mid-sized, large, or these large uh, practices. Great. So fast forwarding now to the completion of the merger and congratulations for managing that. That must have been a huge task. Have there been any particular changes to daily practice that you see as a part of Mednax uh, 
when compared to the days when you were an independent private practice? You know, it's interesting. In the beginning, and for the first, like, probably six to 12 months, I had, like, several radiologists coming to me and said, there's, like, no change. What happened? You know, we are still doing what we are doing. We are still practicing the way that we are. So that this is good. And I see, like, first, do no harm. And talking with, with the Manex leadership, that's their approach. Like, first, do no harm. Uh, and then look at opportunities where you can add uh, value. We started to see the changes now, which are led by our team in terms of implementation of an integration of the technology of the Menex VRAD uh, technology. We were able to expand. So the Miami practice, we were able to expand to the Florida Keys, to Palm Beach, and to Naples. So we had uh, this really expansion. We were able to recruit new physicians. I believe just in, in the Miami practice last year, we recruited over 10 new radiologists due to expansion of services. And we were able to implement this new technology. So imagine, you know, a hospital in the Keys or, you know, a smaller facility elsewhere that you, you need like one or two radiologists, but how one or two radiologists can provide neuro, MSK, cardiac, pediatric care. Uh, in general, yes, you can provide a lot of the bread and butter for radiology, but having that technology to integrate so that was important. So we were able to integrate with the VRAD Manex technology and have core group of physicians doing like the core specialties, particularly breast imaging, neural body and IR, and have pods of subspecialty experts in sports medicine and MSK and cardiac imaging and, and advanced body imaging that can provide work. So this is our physicians using the, the technology. Okay. So that was a big win. And the second win uh, was mainly for the hospital expansion of services. That was one thing that we were limited, uh, subspecialty services after hours. So that was also a big win that we were able to, with the technology and with the additional pool of subspecialties we were able to achieve. That's terrific. Now, as the practice leader, how have your roles and responsibilities changed with this transition? The board remained. So we had minor changes in just people. We, we always have every two years, we have new folks coming to the board. But the board structure for the local practice remained the same, uh, the structure. And my role, I, I continue to uh, lead the practice, but also I took for the past year or so the additional responsibility of helping Menex with the physician leadership and vision with the chief medical officer position. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to asking you a few things about the chief medical officer position. I just have a few more questions about the transition and some of your thoughts about um, merging with Mednax. 
my connection to the MCVI goes way back. 25 years ago, Barry Katzen invited me to join the group for a few days to educate the team on the new field of CT angiography and provide training to kickstart their program. At that time, the ethos was heavily focused on innovation and care delivery and the establishment of an academic model for interventional radiology, establishing international leadership through the annual ICIT meeting, as well as engagement in a number of clinical trials. Success in those dimensions required access to substantial capital. How does MCVI preserve this legacy of innovation as a division of Mednax? First, I, I would start. We have some great leaders in interventional radiology, and we are very proud of our interventional radiologist action. So, first, like with Barry Katzen, pioneer in IR, uh, and then Jim Beninati as a great leader in IR, and we have several coming in with Tino Pena and Alex Powell and Adam Geronimus and many others. Also brings more interventional oncology with Ripple and, and Raj and, you know, a lot of leaders coming in. So we are very blessed with the people, with the facilities. Over time, we have proven to Baptist the importance of IR and the impact in length of stay and the impact in the care delivery model. So I think Baptist continues to invest in the technology and in the facilities for IR. And Mennex saw that as an opportunity. That is like a leading service. And that goes, we'll link this, is how can we translate best practices that we see in a practice and to bring that expertise to other practices? And we are learning from other practices and we are also sharing with other practices. And I think that's the beauty of having a true integrated national practice. Uh, so in that regard, we have an IR collaborative for Mennex, and we have a lot of enthusiasm in, in that area. And the academic mission in particular, which is such a differentiating point uh, at MCVI and, and goes back so many years, how is their support maintained for that academic mission under Mednax? we continue to provide the same level of academic mission. Basically, we have five fellows. So actually, we increased over time. We had four IR fellows. Now we have five. We also have a fellowship in neurointerventional radiology and also in cardiac imaging. So that is fully supportive. And now, some conferences that actually we were not able to to do through Baptist. We did a few years and then there were like some restructure in the Baptist side. We'll be able now to do with Mennex. They have a dedicated education and research component and they provide CME. So we'll be able to have their support in, in, in supporting us in, in continuing with that education and research component. Okay, wow. That's really terrific. Let's turn to your new role as chief medical officer. You were recently named CMO for Mednax Radiology Solutions, which is an organization with over 800 radiologists. Would you describe the position and its responsibilities? Sure. No, it's, it's definitely a new challenge. 
and I believe a, a great opportunity to you know bring things that we discussed during this call to the national practice. The practice is exactly as you describe. We have 800 radiologists. We have about 350 on the ground and 450 plus on the cloud with ERAD. We have leading national practices in many states, including Florida, Texas, Connecticut, Tennessee, Nevada. And we read about 12 million studies a year. And with the, the VRAD technology, we are basically integrating all practices. And we can expand more on how that can change the clinical delivery model. Yeah, that's, that sounds really exciting. Now, given the scope of these new responsibilities, how has your approach to serving as your group's CEO changed? You know, at this time, it's, you know, you are adding responsibilities. So it's how can you find time? At this point, my responsibilities at the practice uh, remain similar. I shift, like personally, I have always been very passionate, as you know, about cardiac imaging and other areas. So I had to, you know, give up in certain areas. I'm still involved, but a lot less. So that part is, is being dedicated now of helping the, the national practice to grow and succeed. Yeah, so it's remarkable that you're taking on all of these activities simultaneously, but unquestionably, that's what leaders do. And it sounds like you're doing a great job with it. And now with your C-suite position, I'm interested in your perspective on corporate strategy. How would you describe Mednax's corporate strategy? Sure. Basically, we, with Mennax Radiology, we created an advisory board that we have the practice leaders of the practices part of the advisory board. We have leadership from VRAD, and we have leadership from the C-suite from Mennax. So we meet every two months, and the leadership from radiology management. So we meet every two months to set up the charge for the national practice. So with that, basically, our strategic planning comes down to five key initiatives. And the first initiative is clinical excellence. It comes down to taking great care of the patient first. And I can expand on that. The second initiative is best-in-class technology and really becoming the core engine uh, with the technology to drive and support the national practice. The third initiative is strategic growth. The fourth initiative is meaningful data analytics. And the fifth initiative is having an effective and efficient uh, administrative support. In a nutshell, that's our strategy. And going back to what happened with RASF, I think the key for creating a strategy and a culture within the practice that you have physician alignment and you have physician engagement. Yeah, no, I, honestly, I think it's, it's terrific that you consistently emphasize strategy, strategic planning, and to be able to articulate 
your principal goals the way you are is a really important message for leaders that are listening in and would-be leaders. It's tremendous how disciplined you are around that. I really applaud that. Now, how does Mednax seek to differentiate itself amongst other larger providers of radiology services? What do you see as its competitive advantage? Sure, sure. Uh, let's just start with the technology and then I'll go back to the other areas. As we know, radiology, we are highly dependent on technology and having a great you know, information and tools so that we, as radiologists, we are focused on reading the images. So the, the technology is a core component of the strategy and a major differentiator. And with the VRAD Mennex radiology platform that has been developed for the past 15 years, highly optimized for teleradiology and being highly optimized now for also the on-the-ground practices. So a lot of investments are being made now to, to continue to enhance and optimize for the on-the-ground practices. And that allows to integrate the practices and to connect the practices and be able to create different clinical staffing models. Uh, for example, uh, just giving one example, and that is adding technology to the clinical excellence, which is, I believe, uh, the second differentiator is bringing the centers of excellence. So we launched uh, in the past year, the Memex Radiology Centers of Excellence, that we take best practices from different practices, and we are able to provide those new services, new clinical pathways, new subspecialty expertise to other practices elsewhere. So I mentioned one example of the practice in Naples. There is another great example in Texas. There is expansion in the standalone ERs. And there is a need to provide cardiac imaging. So we had training and uh, establishing clinical pathways and sharing best practices. And now with the VRAD integration, a study can be acquired in Texas. It can be processed locally or it can be through the VRAD platform. We have a 3D lab at Jefferson Radiology in Connecticut that can do the processing of those images. And then send either back to Texas or send to Miami for cardiac imagers that are specializing in cardiac imaging to provide the read and then send back to the patient in Texas. So that IT integration is unique. And it's not only about technologies, it's what you do with the technology. So that's where the centers of excellence that we are beginning to promote really high-end subspecialty care that not only has coverage during daytime, but 24-7. It's one example of the differentiation. The third one that I would like to mention is just our strategy with machine learning AI. We launched our AI incubator where we are able to partner with large companies and startup companies to how we are going to improve care, how we are going to have a better workflow efficiency for radiologists. We are very proud of that and we are making some significant strides in our machine learning AI strategy. 
That's terrific. You certainly deserve to be very proud of that. I'm going to ask you one last question about uh, Mednax, and then we'll turn to some a uh, couple of other things. As a publicly traded company, Mednax has shareholders, and uh, those shareholders are going to be looking for profit. How do you pursue clinical quality as a primary goal if it is not necessarily the most profitable path to care delivery? Jeff, in medicine and healthcare, first, you need to take great care of the patient. And that is, even being a a public traded company, we have physician leaders, and that is also like a great model that like Mayo Clinic has, like the diet model, that for every position you have, uh, important position, you have the diet model with a physician and an administrator. And you need to take good care of patients. It's just imperative. And if you do that, and if you do that well, and if you differentiate, profits will follow. The ability to recruit and retain will follow. It's a lot easier said than done, but that is our goal and our mission. Yeah, very good. And as it should be, no doubt, no doubt. And I'm you know, delighted to hear you're emphasizing that. And I'd like to ask you something quickly about the Society of Cardiovascular CT, because you have been very active in the society. You've been a president of the society and helped move it along. The SCCT has members that are both cardiologists and radiologists. Do you have a sense off the top of your head about the relative percentage of those two groups? Sure. I'm glad you're bringing that because I think that's another part of my career that I'm very proud of, my engagement and participation with the Society of Cardiovascular CT. In the past, it used to be like a predominant cardiology society. I remember in the beginning, it was probably like 75%, 25% breakdown. And actually, over time, it transitioned. I don't have the latest numbers, but if I would guess, it's probably now 60, 40. It's still predominant cardiologists, but uh, uh, more and more uh, involvement from radiologists. So like SCCT has fostered the proper use of uh, cardiac CT and cardiovascular imaging. Uh, and it has been a great pleasure to be part of that and be able to be part of that leadership and still provide uh, some advice. Yeah, thank you for your leadership there. And in particular, I think, you know, the transition to greater radiologist participation when it was a cardiology dominant organization for so many years is fantastic. And it's because of leaders such as yourself and other radiology leaders within that organization committing, I'm sure that we see more radiologists involved. Now, during your years at MCVI, and in particular, as your administrative responsibilities grew at MCVI, why did you make the choice to pursue SCCT leadership roles at the same time? You know, I think it was mainly an opportunity over time. SCCT was born in 2005, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and I was part of uh, like being a founding member and uh, being early engaged with this society. Uh, so it was mainly a path. And, and as being 
and, and I think many of the listeners, you need to start being part of committees and demonstrate your value in the committees and then help in, in other areas. And then I became board member and then part of the executive committee. And then I believe it was in 2014, 15, that I was able to be president of the society. But that was like just a continuous path to be a good leader. First, you need to be a good follower. So I think that's, that's a great comment. You know, I think that you are the first guest on Taking the Lead who has directly quoted one of our other guests. So kudos to you for that. That's marvelous. Now, I understand that you have decided to pursue an MBA. What made you decide to do that now? You know, it's interesting, Jeff. I think it's the ability of always continue to learn, learn and, and advance. I think I learned a lot of things in real life, which is great. And then you see part of, you know, your shortcomings and your limitations. And understanding those is important. And then how can you enhance that part. So I always enjoyed finance and I think it will be a great way to enhance my skills in strategy, entrepreneurship, finance, and other skills. Yeah. I'm sure you're going to absolutely love it. I have yet to meet a, a radiologist or a physician that has had substantial leadership roles and then subsequently gone for an MBA who hasn't just loved the experience. That was my perspective on it. I, I loved every moment of it. When do you get started? So we'll be actually this upcoming year. So we'll be at Babson, and uh, Babson is, is really focused in entrepreneurship. And I really enjoy that path of innovation, entrepreneurship. I'm excited with this new challenge. Yeah, that's right. Well, get ready. There's going to be some more things to do coming your way. <laughs> Yeah. Absolutely. You're juggling so many big jobs and you're about to take on an MBA curriculum on top of it. How do you maintain control of your schedule as opposed to your schedule controlling you? You know, Jeff, it's not easy. Uh, as you know, it's not easy at all. But in the end of the day, you need to have your time off. You need to have your dedication to your family. You need to nurture that component uh, with the family so it's unwinding i like to play sports i like to travel uh, it's always hard to find a consistent time and a schedule but i try my best do you actually formally schedule time to unwind recharge and spend time with family Yes, I try to carve out dedicated time and a schedule. And I think in the end, it's a matter of being disciplined with time and priorities. What would you say have been your most rewarding moments as a leader? That's a, that's a difficult question. You know... I believe that experience with RASF running the group and a group that was well-established that had great leaders before, there were a lot of, you know, 
challenges and that's the time that you understand what is resilience is you know all this adverse things happening and how can you keep laser focus how can you minimize those stresses and keep you know charting the way so probably that has been my most rewarding experience to be able to look back and say you know i contribute my part we have a great team we have some great people but i was able to contribute my part yeah okay that's great i have one last question for you and that is this looking ahead what excites you most about radiology jeff i believe is innovation is how we can innovate and disrupt the clinical delivery model. Radiology, I believe, is a key specialty. We need to be looking broader, and that goes into you know the entire episode of care uh, and how can we impact clinical pathways, how can we impact subspecialty expertise, how can we impact patient outcome before, during, and after imaging, and really how you can use technology and first is about processes and then adding technology to augment those processes and i believe will be a, a very interesting journey particularly with machine learning ai and how we incorporate that in clinical practice well ricardo you are a remarkable leader coming from Brazil to this country and establishing yourself in such meaningful ways, both for the entire specialty and advancing cardiac CT, representing radiology with the SCCT, but also in serving at the vanguard of MCVI and RASF to advance that practice into an entire new model of care. You have a tremendous vision for the future. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Jeff, it was my great pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, and uh, thank you. Okay, that's it for this time. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to do three easy things. Subscribe to the series so you can never miss an episode. Share the link so your peers can listen too. And like or rate every episode so more people will discover it. Please join me next month when I speak with Carolyn Meltzer, Chair of the Department of Radiology and Imaging Sciences at the Emory University School of Medicine where she also serves as the Executive Associate Dean for Faculty Academic Advancement, Leadership and Inclusion, and the William Timmy Endowed Professor. After 11 years at Johns Hopkins University for medical school and postgraduate training, Dr. Meltzer spent nine years at the University of Pittsburgh, where she was medical director for their PET facility, chief of neuroradiology, and vice chair for research. She initially joined Emory University as the Chief Academic Officer of the Department of Radiology, but rose to the role of Department Chair within her first year and has served in that role for 13 years. She has contributed broadly and deeply to national and international organizations, including serving as President of the American Society of Neuroradiology, 
president of the Academy for Radiology and Biomedical Imaging Research, inaugural chair of the Commission on Research for the American College of Radiology, and serves on the administrative board of the Council of Faculty and Academic Societies for the Association of American Medical Colleges. She has lectured and written extensively on leadership topics, and as a fellow of ELAM, the Executive Leadership and Academic Medicine Program for Women, has been a strong advocate for women leaders in radiology. A true Renaissance woman, Carolyn is a fine art photographer whose images of the natural world have won awards and grace galleries. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Peg Helminski for production support, Linda Sowers for our marketing, Brian Russell for technical support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin from Duke University. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or the RLI at RLI underscore ACR. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to joining me next time on Taking the Lead.